Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. We are attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I think we should say it again. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Dr. Powers is the preacher of the evening. Somebody asked me, you know, he's the New Testament guy, what's he doing preaching from the Old Testament? <clears throat> he'll, he'll explain all that in a bit. And then we have a guest on campus, I think most of you have met him already, Dr. Mark Maddox, uh, Dean of the School of Theology and Christian Ministries from Northwest Nazarene University. Would you welcome him? You've made such a change in our lives, Father. such a change. So we give you praise and adoration and thanks. You've made it possible for us to be your children, for us to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We do pray for your empowerment, not just for our sakes, though we need it. We pray for your empowerment so that we can minister to those who don't know you yet so that they too can say, I worship you, almighty God. Now we ask that you would help our hearts and minds to hear your word through your servant. Work in us in the way that we need it. We don't ask that lightly. because there is none like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis. Nice thing about Old Testament and Genesis, you can find it really easily, right? I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read the first seven verses of this chapter. Genesis chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 7. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read from the Lord's Word together this evening. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. The significance of this story is almost too hard to grasp. Through the serpent's temptation, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And through them, all people have fallen into sin. 
You know, sometimes when we read this story, we tend to focus all of our attention upon the role of the serpent, and then we try to see Adam and Eve in the best light possible. After all, they had no choice. The devil caused them to sin, right? Well, I believe that it would be a mistake on our part if we did not recognize the role of Satan within the serpent. The devil certainly represents a powerful force which must be realized and resisted within our lives. But we would be amiss to think that humanity fell into sin simply because, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it, honey. How many of you are old enough to remember that? Uh, all right. Well, Adam and Eve have no excuse. Serpent or no serpent, they willfully disobeyed. I'm reminded of the story of the little boy who had a younger sister. And one day this little boy became so angry at her that he went into her bedroom and began to tear things apart. First he messed up her bed, but that just wasn't enough. And so he stomped on the girl's dolls. Then he found her play dishes and he broke all of them and he pulled all the hair out of the dolls' heads. And finally he was still so mad that he ran up to his sister and he just spit on her. Well, of course, the boy's mother came to him and said, Oh, Johnny, Johnny, why did you do all these terrible things? The devil made you do it, didn't he, honey? Well, the boy looked at his mother and said, Yes, Mommy, the devil made me do it. He made me tear up her room, and he made me break all her dishes and pull all the hair out of the doll's, doll's heads. The de devil made me do all these terrible things, Mommy. But, Mommy, spitting on her, that was my idea. <laughs> Well, just like this little boy, we need to recognize that Adam and Eve are not guiltless in the fall. They're not coerced into rebellion. They rebel. When we look at this story of the fall, there are several very interesting and tricky details that we shouldn't allow to slip from our awareness. Notice the serpent's role here. Notice the serpent does not walk up to Eve and say, Hey, Eve, why don't you disobey God? Go ahead, eat from that tree over there. Life's been pretty boring around here lately, so eat of that tree and curse humanity forever. No, Satan doesn't approach her in this way. Instead, the serpent begins with a subtle, deceptive suggestion. Come on, Eve, don't joke with me now. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so Satan's deception begins. We have often heard it said that Satan is the father of lies. We need to believe it. Satan is a liar. But we need to know that while this is true, we should not picture Satan as being some type of big, dumb, bungling liar. He's a liar, true, but he's not a fool. He is very deceptive in his lies. Have you ever noticed how the truth can sometimes be used in such a way and manipulated in such a way that it becomes a lie? If you think about this, then probably most of us are familiar with this technique. I remember when I was a child that something in our house got broken. Now, I had three older brothers, and we were all within five years of each other, and so, believe me, there were lots of things that got broken in our house. Well, this thing got broken. My mom came and asked me, she said, well, Danny, did you break my flower vase? And I answered her sarcastically, sure, Mom, sure I broke it. I break everything I touch. Why don't you blame me for everything that's broken in our house? <laughs> well, she seemed pretty satisfied that I'd not broken the vase, when in fact, 
I had. I told the truth, right? I told the truth. Well, actually, I told a half-truth. Unfortunately, these kinds of half-truths do not last very long. Mom wasn't satisfied very long, and I had to pay for it in the end, or to be a little bit more accurate, I had to pay for it on the end. Um, you know, half-truths are kind of like a candy coating around a bitter-tasting medicine. It might taste pretty good at first, but it always has a mighty bitter ending. And this is exactly what takes place in this story. Everything the serpent says is deceptively and bitingly true. But the truth, he says, is also misrepresented, and so it is a lie. Let's look at what he does here. Look at some of the truths which the serpent says. First, he answers Eve when she said that they would die if they ate from the tree. You will not surely die. Well, after Adam and Eve took and ate, did they die? No. They were still alive. Then again, the serpent said, your eyes will be opened. In verse 7, we can read that after they ate, it's recorded, then the eyes of both of them were opened. He was right again, so it would seem. Then he said, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here's where one major slip comes in. You know, a liar can deal with half-truths for a while without being caught. But sooner or later, a liar will have to come out and out and lie. Truly, Adam and Eve gained the knowledge of good and evil. But far from becoming like God, they became like Satan. For now, they knew evil. There's a word here in this passage which I think is of critical importance. Now, I'm going to do a little experiment here. I know how excited everyone gets when a preacher uses a Greek word in his sermon. And um, I'm going to try to do the same type of thing with a Hebrew word. I'm sure that Dr. King will really enjoy this a lot. Um, so we'll just see how that works. I can't use any Greek here. I could go to my Septuagint, but I didn't want to do that, so we just have to use the Hebrew. The Hebrew word that we find here, and it's actually the Hebrew word for this English word, to know. The Hebrew word is, now you're ready for this, right? It's yada. Did you feel it? Oh, you guys. <laughs> There's too much asleep, I think. The Hebrew word is yada. And in the Hebrew, this word goes much deeper than the English conception of what we typically think of to know. In Hebrew, yada, to know, is to experience. To know something is become acquainted with that something, to actually participate in that something. It implies ability. As the great Old Testament scholar Wellhausen said, to know in the ancient world is always to be able as well. Thus, to know evil is to experience evil. It is the ability to act evil, to actually be evil. So listen to what Satan, in essence, essence says here. Adam and Eve, do you want to know good and evil? You've always known what good is, but you also want to know what evil is? God has withheld this knowledge from you. What? God has withheld this knowledge from us? 
Why has God done this? This isn't fair. God must not love us if he's withholding these things from us. God is trying to hold us away from him. God doesn't want mankind too close to him. God is trying to keep us distant. Adam and Eve, God doesn't love you. God's trying to hold you away from him. Take, eat of this fruit. In verse 6 we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate of it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate of it. Rebellion had run its course. Sin entered into the world. Where did it come from? How did it begin? Well, it began here with suspicion, jealousy, envy, rivalry, pride. And these was the beginning of sin. God doesn't really love me. If he loved me, he would give me what I want. God doesn't care about me. He's trying to keep me distant. Certainly he doesn't love me. You see, suspicion. Why should God know something that I don't know? Why, why can he understand the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I can't? Why can he have something that I can't have? You see, jealousy, envy. I want to decide for myself. I want to make my own decisions. Let me choose between right and wrong. Let me determine what is right and wrong. I can decide. I know as much as God does. I can decide as good and maybe even better than God can. Let me do it. Pride. Who is God anyway? I'm as good as he is. He's trying to push me back. He's afraid if I get too close to him, I might just take over for him. I can do what he does. Let me be God. I want to be God. You see, rivalry. And so it began. Suspicion, jealousy, envy, pride, rivalry. The suggestions of the serpent had seemed so harmless. The suggestions had seemed so rational, almost even logical. But the candy-coated deception did not last very long. You will not surely die, the serpent said. And for sure, they did not immediately die a physical death. But believe me, they died. Spiritually, they died. And physically, they would die. Oh, the bitter sting of death. Now, they would die. Your eyes will be opened, the serpent said. And for sure, their eyes were opened. But what did they see? Nakedness, shame. They saw weakness, vulnerability. Oh, the bitter sting of opened eyes. The startling awareness of nakedness and shame. Now their eyes were opened, and all they saw was shame and nakedness. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, the serpent said. And for sure, they now knew good and evil. But they experienced good and evil too. Yes, they had always known what good was. Good was everywhere around them in the utopian garden. 
Goodness was in the air, it was in the trees, it was in the grass, it was in the animals. Good was embraced in everything in their lives. But now, they knew evil. They experienced evil. And it recolored and corrupted everything. Every good is now shadowed by the stalking threat of an equal, equally powerful potential evil. The precious utopia of the garden had been invaded and corrupted. Oh, the bitter sting of the knowledge of evil. Now they knew good and evil, and the potential for them, as it is for us, the potential for evil was everywhere. They took and they ate. What an act. What a consequence. They took and they ate. It seemed so simple, so harmless, but oh, how significant. So little the act, so great the consequence. As Romans 5, Romans 5 tells us, therefore sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. And so in the same way that Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned, so do all people rebel and sin against God. Evil and corruption permeate our world. There's no escaping it. Suspicion of God, jealousy and envy towards God, pride against God, rivalry against God. But evil is not without its consequences. Every day we hear of suffering and pain. We read about murder and corruption and pain and death. We see pain. We experience pain. We hear of poverty and suffering. We experience poverty and suffering. We hear of estrangement and loneliness. And we also experience estrangement and loneliness. Adam and Eve took and ate. And so do we also take and eat. And death and sin and evil are all around us. I'm often startled and amazed at the deep, subtle irony of the scriptures. Adam and Eve took and ate of the forbidden fruit in order to live. They ate in order to know good and evil. They took and ate to become more like God, to become closer to God, to actually be gods. But everything they hoped to gain was lost. Instead of life, they received death. Instead of knowing and distinguishing between good and evil, they became slaves of evil and sin. Instead of becoming more like God, they were estranged from God and cast out of his presence. What tragic irony. How happy I am, though, that the message is not in there. Man rebelled and sinned, but God still loved. God loved so much that he sent his son. God himself came as a man. I find it so interesting. We've kind of talked about some of those, those indictments, some of those accusations that Adam and Eve tossed towards God. Things like, God doesn't love us. We want to live. We want to know good and evil. God is pushing us away. God wasn't, doesn't want to come, become too close to mankind. God doesn't care. God reverses each one of these indictments through the gift and sacrifice 
of His only Son, Jesus Christ. Just think of it. Whereas mankind doubted God's love, God loved so much that He sent His Son. Whereas mankind accused God of wanting to push humanity away, God Himself came to earth and lived among the people. Whereas man futilely tried to become God, God became man. Whereas mankind plunged into death by rebelliously clutching after life, Christ willingly chose death so that all people through faith in Him might live. What a reversal. What a divine reversal. Paul said, where sin did abound, grace abounded even more. This is the good news that we proclaim. It is for this that we truly give thanksgiving. Where sin once abounded, grace now abounds even more. Humanity fell in its attempt to know good and evil, but with knowledge came experience. And through Adam, we all experienced evil with its sin and its death. But now God offers us an alternative. He offers us Christ. Through Christ, we can once again experience righteousness and goodness. But we must know Christ. We must experience Him personally. And we must allow the death-resounding indictments of our lives to be reversed by God through faith in Christ. This is repentance. We're talking about a reversal here, a complete change of everything. Truly knowing Christ is to recognize our utter depravity, our utter sinfulness. And when we know Christ, when we accept Christ, He grants us the forgiveness and then the power to turn our backs upon our former way of life and to rejoin God in peaceful, restored communion. What a cause for rejoicing. This is true thanksgiving, to recognize that God loves us and He offers us new life in Christ. I'm awestruck by the amazing reversal that God makes possible in our life. I'm amazed at how often God takes the garbage and the mistakes of our lives and He reverses them. He changes them completely. But the more I've thought about this, the more I've, I, that I have realized that God actually does this all the time. I can't help but think about the story of Joseph. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they finally met again in Egypt? You remember that Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery because of their jealousy of him. When they met again in Egypt, then Joseph had been elevated to being the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. The brothers were terrified of the revenge that they thought that Joseph might take upon them. But Joseph said, and I love these words, he said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is the essence of the divine reversal. You meant it for harm, God meant it for good. Praise his name. I'm amazed at how often God takes those elements in our lives that were meant to harm us and reverses them and then even uses them for the building of His kingdom. This just blows me away. Now, does this mean that God wants us to experience these kind of things? Does this mean that God wants us to go through things like divorce or drug abuse or, or, or alcohol abuse or, or, or destructive experiences in our life? No. God doesn't want those things to happen. 
but he uses them anyway. I have seen him use former drug addicts so that they could witness and help people who are battling drug abuse. I have seen him use people who have been divorced in order to minister to and bring healing to those who are facing divorce today. God doesn't want us to go through these types of problems and sins, but God will use us anyway. Isn't that great news? It doesn't matter what has stained your past life. It doesn't matter what you've been through. God will use you anyway because he's God. It is the miracle of his divine reversal. We see the same thing happening in an incredible way in the story of the fall of humanity through Adam and Eve. Just think about what has happened. Adam and Eve took and ate. And what a consequence they reaped. Sin and death became their reward, and it invaded all of creation. They took and ate. So simple the act, but so difficult the undoing. Christ would have to face, face punishment and death before the consequences of their and our actions could be reversed. But now through Christ, the reversal is possible. Christ offers himself to each of us. He offers us peace. He offers us life. He offers us true communion with God. Adam and Eve took and ate, and death was their reward. But Christ now offers himself to us. He holds forth his peace with God, and he holds forth life everlasting. Think about what Christ has done. As a matter of fact, in this week of Christ's life, Christ offered himself and said, take, eat. This is my body of the new covenant. And so those words of judgment and damnation, they took and ate, have now been transformed by Christ into verbs of salvation. Come, take, eat. This is what Christ has made available for you. In this Passion Week, let's ponder the divine reversal that Christ has made possible for, for us through his death, and even more so through his resurrection. Christ has made a reversal of our lives possible. It doesn't matter what sins you have committed. It doesn't matter what kinds of sin, rebellion, and depravity you have taken and eaten. Christ takes our sins upon himself and offers us his body, his life, instead. And he says, come, take, eat. Only Christ can take the pain, the death, and the tragedy of a day of execution and turn it into a day that we call Good Friday. It's all part of his divine reversal. So what about you? What is there in your life that needs to experience the divine reversal? What have you done? Did you think that God won't be able to use you anymore? That that sin, that that problem, that that issue is too much? Christ offers himself and says, come, take, eat. Christ is waiting for you.
Father, I thank you for the reversal that you make possible in our lives through Jesus Christ. And Father, would you not let us count that short? Would you protect us from listening to the deception of Satan, who would continue to say, no, you've taken and eaten of too many bad things. There's no hope. 
but in Christ there is hope. In Him and through Him, with Him, by Him, all things are possible. And so, Father, I thank You for that victory. I thank You for that change. I thank You for that grace. I thank You for that love. I thank You for that victory, which is ours through the divine reversal that we have in Christ. And so we go from this place with new hope, with new joy, with new thanksgiving, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done and what Christ wants to do in us. And we thank you and we praise you. And so we go from this place with your victory, with your Son, with your Spirit, and we give thanks. These things we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Lord bless you.